Hi there, I'm Sue Elvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 121. And today I want to talk about looking at life through the eyes of a child. Yes, sometimes we fail to see the needs of our children. I have a story to share with you on this topic. Also, I want to talk about taking children to church. What if they don't want to go? Should we force them to come along with us? But before I start talking about today's topics, I just thought I'd catch you up with a little bit of news. It is the last day of summer here in Australia, the 28th of February. Our seasons correspond with the months of the year. A lot of my overseas friends can't understand that. And yes, maybe our seasons aren't quite as accurate as seasons are in other places around the world, but they are very easy for us to remember. So tomorrow we'll be heading into autumn, and autumn will cover the months of March, April, and May. And then of course we'll have winter, June, July, and August, before it starts getting warm again, September, October, November, and then right down at the end of the year we will be back into summer. So it's the last day of summer. How do I feel about that? Well, it has been a long, dry summer, and I'm actually looking forward to some cooler days. But saying that, I also feel a little sad. As the days start to get shorter and the temperature goes down, part of me yeah, feels sad. Time is moving on. Another summer is over. Even though I'm looking forward to the autumn colours and, as I said, the cooler weather, little part of me doesn't want to move on. The thought of autumn arriving excites me and then I get up early in the morning and it's cold and dark and I think, oh dear, this is not as good as I imagined. Yes, our days are getting shorter. I'm not exactly sure when the sun is rising, probably about 6.40 or even a couple of minutes later. This means that Gemma Rose and I are going out for our morning runs in the semi-dark. I've been getting up about 10 to 6 in the morning. My daughters Imogen and Sophie are already up at this time of the day. They're getting ready to go out. Sophie starts work at 7 o'clock. But to get to work, she has a 45-minute drive, and Imogen has been driving her there. So they go out about ten past six in the morning in the pitch black. Jim Rose gets out of bed, and we get ready to go for our run. We're going out a couple of minutes later every day. I think we went out about twenty past six this morning. It might have been twenty-five past six. But certainly, it wasn't fully light. We walked down to the park, and surprise, surprise, we were the only people down there. Well, actually, there's a boot camp group that meets a couple of days a week, and they exercise on the playing fields, but they weren't there this morning. It was quite cool. Both of us wore our hoodies, though we were brave, and we took them off before we set off down the tracks. 
Chimarez set off in one direction, and I decided to run down the side of the playing field, and there's a track that runs down the back of the playing field that meets the main fire trail. Well, I set off, and I had Nora, our dog, with me, and she pulled and pulled, and she sprinted down the side of this field, and I couldn't understand why. She seemed over-enthusiastic. I know in the morning she is excited to get out there. She puts her tail up and her nose down and she sniffs. And I imagine there are a lot of fresh smells to vacuum up. But this morning she sprinted even faster than normal. Too fast. I couldn't keep up. So I drew in the leash and I pulled her to a stop. And that's when I noticed the kangaroo. There was a kangaroo hopping around the playing fields. Yes, on the other side of the fence from us. I wondered at first how the kangaroo managed to get onto the playing fields. It's hard to describe the gates. It's like a section of the fence has been moved back. You have to turn parallel to the field and then turn at right angles onto the field. And I don't imagine a kangaroo can do that. I think the kangaroo must have jumped over the fence. There's one side of the playing field where the fence is fairly low. So that's where I imagine the kangaroo came from. And then once on the field, it started hopping around. Maybe it couldn't find its way back again. Anyway, we decided to turn round and run in another direction. It's not the only time we've met kangaroos early in the morning. A couple of weeks ago, my daughter Charlotte came down to the park with us as well. Jimarez and I were running, and Charlotte was walking one of the dogs. And she saw six kangaroos behind the playing fields. They disappeared into the bush as she came along. And I was behind them. I came along, and I had no idea that there were kangaroos there. Nora did her trick of putting her nose to the ground, her tail up, and she just went for it. We hurtled down the bush track, down the hill, over the uneven ground, stumbling over the rocks. We shot out onto the main trail where Charlotte was. As I was running towards her, I was complaining about Nora and how I couldn't control her. And she said, Mom, it wasn't her fault. There were kangaroos up there. There used to be a man who walked his dogs about the same time that we went running. And he never put his dogs on leashes, which was rather a nuisance for us because every time we came along, the dogs would chase after us. We'd run with the dogs on our tail until the man could call them back. But one day, we were down at the tracks a little later than normal, and the man was walking around by himself. And he asked me if I'd seen his dogs. Apparently, they'd seen a kangaroo and disappeared into the bush chasing it. I don't know if that man ever got his dogs back. I saw him a few hours later. He still hadn't found one of his dogs. That was last summer. This summer, we haven't seen the man and the dogs at all. Maybe he was put off walking his dogs early in the morning down the bush tracks. So Gemma Rose and I went for a run this morning, our last run of the summer season. And then we came home and we did some housework, had showers, and talked about what we wanted to do today. And I said to Gemma Rose, I think I might record a podcast. I haven't recorded one for a couple of weeks. And she said, you record it this morning, Mum. I've got things I want to do as well. And so while I'm recording this, Gemma Rose is working with Charlotte. 
Yes, they're making some sprites using Photoshop. They're going to use their sprites in a computer game. Charlotte introduced Gemma Rose to the website Stencil. That's Stencil with a Y. S-T-E-N-C-Y-L. It's a site where you can make computer games. Charlotte has been working for about six weeks on a particular game of hers, and it was only a couple of weeks ago that we became aware of this game. I probably said to her, what are you doing, Charlotte? And she said, I'm making a computer game, Mum. Do you want to see? And then Gemma Rose had a look, and then Charlotte offered to help Gemma Rose make a computer game of her own. So that's what they're doing at the moment. They're giving me a little bit of free time before morning tea to record this episode. So I suppose I should get on to the topic of the day. I said I was going to talk about looking at life through the eyes of a child rather than through the parents' eyes or through other adults' eyes. It can be really tricky when we take our children out in public. Sometimes we put other people's expectations, other people's opinions ahead of our own, ahead of the needs of our children. Or we criticize other parents. We might wonder why they can't keep control of their children. That type of thing. Parents are blamed maybe for the poor behavior of children, Parents complain that nobody understands and their children should be welcome anywhere. And maybe it would be nice if other people made allowances for their children. Maybe they could even offer some help. Well, about four years ago, there was a big story in the Sydney newspapers about a couple who had taken their child to a restaurant. The child cried. A lot of the other people in the restaurant got very upset with the parents. How could they have taken their child out? Their dinner had been spoilt by the screaming child. The parents thought that it was their right to take their child to a restaurant. Why shouldn't they be able to do that? They had the same rights as all the other adults in the restaurant. This story stirred up a huge debate. Some people were on the side of the parents, and some people were on the side of the other restaurant-goers, the other diners. And I began to wonder, who was on the side of the child? And so I wrote this story. It's called, When a Child Can't Cope. A few months ago, a family story made big news in a city newspaper. One Sunday, a married couple decided to take their small son to a restaurant. It wasn't long before the young boy started to make a fuss. He wouldn't sit quietly in his chair and do what he was told, and soon he was the centre of attention. Fellow diners complained about the child's noise and behaviour, and the restaurant manager felt compelled to ask the parents to leave. They were very upset. They felt they had a right to stay. The parents must have gone to the media with what they perceived to be a story of discrimination. When the story became public news, everyone was discussing the situation. Everyone had an opinion. The parents should have taken the child out of the restaurant. In fact, they shouldn't have brought him in the first place. People go out to dinner to relax and enjoy themselves. 
How can they do this when the child is screaming right next to them? The parents were inconsiderate of those around them. But just as many people disagreed. Parents need to get out of the house and enjoy a meal like everyone else. Why shouldn't they be welcome in a restaurant with a child? Other people need to be more considerate of the needs of parents. They should be more tolerant and not so concerned with themselves. The parents, the fellow diners, why was no one talking about the child? What were his needs? How was he feeling? Was he trying to tell everyone something by screaming? This morning, a child cried at mass. It's a familiar situation. You've probably heard all the discussion before. Everyone has an opinion. No one can hear a word when a child cries. The parents should remove her from the church. It's the considerate thing to do. Or, children should be made to feel welcome at mass. Jesus said, let the children come unto me. But what about the child? What was she saying? I don't want to be here because I am too young to understand and I haven't the patience to sit still for so long. I've heard some parents say, it doesn't matter what the child wants. If she can't sit still, she must learn. If we remove her from the church every time she cries, she will only learn that crying gets her what she wants. She will become manipulative. She will never learn to sit quietly. I wonder if that's true. I took all my children out of mass as soon as they became agitated. And what did they learn? Perhaps my children never learnt to sit still in church. They probably never learnt to love the mass and pay attention. I look along the line of children sitting in our pew. They are all quiet and attentive. Yes, I know. They're older. They should know how to behave at their ages. But it's been that way for many years. Now you might say, I kept my children in Mass even when they protested, and they are all attentive, and love the Mass just like your children do. I don't mean to criticize. I don't want to argue about the end result. All I'm saying is, if it distresses you to deal with a crying child caught in a situation where she is unable to cope, perhaps it's quite okay to give in to her crying and indulge her needs. I am sure children don't need to be forced to do anything. They will learn to do what is right and necessary when they are ready, if they are treated with love and respect. I am remembering. I walk through the church door. Gemma Rose is in my arms. She starts to squirm, even before I have entered a pew. Just as I drop to my knees, she opens her mouth wide, and a loud cry hits my ear. I sigh as I gather up my toddler and make a hasty exit. Mass hasn't even begun, and we are on our way back out the door. I am thinking, she'll never learn to sit still if I keep taking her out. But deep inside, I know that's not true. I know that today I am just tired. I don't want to spend another hour looking at the daisies in the presbytery garden. Today, I want to stay in Mass like everyone else. Today, I want my child to sit quietly by my side. But I know that day will come. And it did. 
As I said in my introduction, that story leads into the question, should we force our children to go to church with us? If they don't want to go, should we leave them at home? Not make them come with us. Do it the unschooling way, maybe. And I've been thinking that we're asking the wrong question. Should we force our children to go to church with us? That is the wrong question. The question we should be pondering is, why don't our children want to come to church with us? Last week I was talking about viewing going to church as a duty, talking about going to church as something that we have to do, rather than something that we want to do. And this week I want to extend that idea a bit further. Perhaps our children don't want to go to church because they can't cope, the same as that boy in my story couldn't cope with going to the restaurant. I have seen some very unhappy children in church, and some very unhappy parents as well, because I think parents do think that it is their duty to make sure their children stay in church and that they are quiet. You have to sit still, you have to be quiet. But children aren't designed for sitting still for very long. And then when children can't sit still, parents get so angry. I've seen parents grab their children and forcibly march them down the aisle and out the back door so that he can administer some discipline. A smart smack to the bottom. Some angry words whispered. When I had little children and I took them to church, I was told many, many times that it wasn't right to take along maybe a snack or some toys or a book for my child to keep them occupied during Mass. But I did it anyway. And sometimes this does work so that we can participate in Mass for a little time. Gives us a chance to say a few prayers, maybe hear the readings But usually there does come a time when we need to scoop up our children and take them out of the church. As I said in the story, I used to take Gemma Rose into the presbytery garden. We used to pick a few flowers together, daisies or lavender. I used to tickle her chin with them. I used to listen to Mass through the church window. I could hear quite a bit. The hymns used to float out the windows. I could pray even though I wasn't there inside with my family. And then when communion time came, I used to walk up the aisle at just the right moment to join my family in the line. And then after communion, somebody else in the family would take Gemma Rose outside while I got a chance to kneel down and say some prayers. Yes, it wasn't perfect, but we have to make a lot of sacrifices when we're parents. And I think God understands that. I think that God gives parents extra graces, especially when we accept the situation, when we put our children before our own needs, our own desires. Because it is nice to be able to sit in the church, to kneel down, to pray, to concentrate like everybody else. And sometimes parents can't do that. I've heard parents say, I need to pray, I need the graces, because being a parent is so very difficult. I need to stay in the church. Why won't my child let me? And I think they missed the point. Why would God penalize parents for seeing to the needs of their children? 
We don't need to be in the church to get the graces. Yes, I think we need to be there with our families. And our children are welcome at church, and we should all go as a family if we can. Though saying that, there have been times when we have done shifts going to church. Half of us have gone at one time, and half of us have gone at another, so that somebody has always been at home to look after maybe a sick toddler or an overtired baby. But on the whole, we always took our children to Mass. And we still do, though of course, they could choose not to if they didn't want to. They all have free will. So should we force children to go to church if they don't want to go? Is it against our unschooling principles to force them? Well, maybe the answer to that question, as I said, is to look at us. Look at the parents. Are we taking pleasure in going to church? Is it something that's important to us? Do we love going or do we look at it as a duty? And do we pass on those feelings to our children? It's just something else that we have to do. And if we go, do we make it a joyful experience for everybody? Do we take our kids' needs into consideration? Do we take them out when they need to leave? Also, I think it's a good idea to explain things at a child's level. Because I imagine it can seem very strange to a toddler sitting in a church. What are we doing here? Why do I have to sit so still? Yes, they might absorb some of it, but explaining it on their level, I'm sure helps. I used to walk up and down the back of the church with Gemma Rose. We used to visit all the statues. And we used to say little prayers at her level. Blow kisses to Jesus in the tabernacle, maybe. I used to point out the candles and say little things like, Father's going to do this next. Father's going to do that. Say a little prayer for your godmother. Little things like that to include her in the Mass. Of course, all those ideas need to be put into practice from day one when our children are babies. What if our children are older? I've never been in that position, and I guess any suggestions I have, I won't be giving them from experience. I won't really be talking about what I know. But maybe we can talk to our children, ask them what they don't like about going to church. Does it just seem a big waste of time? Do they not understand what's going on? Probably the worst thing we can say is, you have to go to Mass because you have to go. That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, children need to be motivated from within to do anything. Maybe allowing our children into our own spiritual lives will help, so that they can see that we have a relationship with God. Maybe pray as a family. Maybe talk about spiritual things in our daily lives, not just on Sundays. Make God a part of our everyday life. I don't know. I wonder if you have any suggestions. I wonder if you have been in that situation and you have found something that helps. All I know is that the more we tell kids that they have to do something, the more that child doesn't want to do it. And going to church is something that should be a wonderful part of our lives. 
I have talked my way around this topic today, but maybe I ought to sit down and try and get some of these thoughts into words. I would like to include something about this topic in my book. Yes, the book. How's the book going? Well, the other day I made my blog private. Well, only for a few hours, overnight. I don't know, I got so overwhelmed with everything and I just wanted to withdraw from the internet, take my family away, leave my internet life behind. Do something else, maybe. I tried to persuade myself that what I was doing isn't very important. Who wants to hear about my family? If I disappeared, nobody would even know that I had gone. Well, these were the things I was telling myself. I got up the next day and I put my blog back online. I know that I wanted to keep on blogging. I just had a wobbly moment in my life. Yes, the wobbly moments of life. Yes, I wrote a blog post called that the other day. The point of the blog post, I think, was the importance of friends and support and encouragement when we start to doubt what we're doing. I'm sure everybody has doubts. I don't have doubts about unschooling. Well, sometimes I do, very, very occasionally. But I'm pretty confident about what we're doing. But there's other things I have doubts about. And so I thought I'd write a post that might encourage other people. Who do we turn to during the wobbly moments of our lives? It was only after I wrote that post and answered the lovely comments that people stopped by and, and left for me that I discovered the real reason that I made my blog private overnight. It wasn't so much the blogging, it's the book. I decided that if I was no longer blogging, I wouldn't have to finish writing this book. I could just forget about it, just disappear. Look, I've been promising this book for a long time, but if nobody could find me, then I wouldn't have to write the book. Nobody could come and say, hey, Sue, you didn't finish your book. When's it coming out? No, I could just disappear and take the problem away. So why don't I want to finish the book? Well, I do want to finish the book. But I worked on it so much last week without getting very far at all. I got to the stage where I thought that I'd lost my ability to write. The words just wouldn't come. I got so frustrated. I'm putting a lot of work in for, for no rewards. At the end of the day, there isn't anything there. And I'm thinking, how am I going to go and tell everybody I haven't made any progress? And then what if I do get to the end of the book? And what if I publish it? And what if a few people buy it? And what if it's no good? Will people come back and say, hey, Sue, you spent so much time on this book and it's no good at all. It's all very well writing a blog. People can stop by. They can read my posts or not. It doesn't cost anybody anything. I'm not asking anything from anybody. But a book. I will be selling a book. A book is more serious. What if I write a book and then I ask people to review it and they don't like it and they've already parted with their money? Yes, some serious things to consider. I had a chat with my daughter Imogen about this when I was having my crisis the other day. She's just about to publish a book of her own. She's written a young adult fantasy novel 
and she's very, very excited. She has spent years writing this book, and she's almost at the stage of formatting it for publication. And of course, going through her mind is probably the same things that are going through mine. What if nobody likes it? But as Imogen said, we've got to be brave. You've got to go out there and do things and not worry about what other people are saying. And normally that doesn't bother me. Well, not too much. But the money aspect of it. Swapping money for my book. To be quite honest, the money would be wonderful. I have spent so much money on podcasting and making videos and blogging over the last few years. And it would be nice to earn a little bit of money to support those activities. Yes, I'm not going to make a fortune, but to have a little bit of money to pay all the hosting fees and to buy a new microphone every now and then or whatever I need would be great. So that's a quick update on my book. Progress is slow, but I haven't given up. And my blog is still online. If you'd like to go over there and dip into my archive, read some of my more recent posts, check the show notes for this episode. So I invite you to visit my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. Well, I think I've come to the end of episode 121. It is time for coffee. I'm going to go and see if the girls have finished making their sprites. Put the kettle on, sit down, have coffee before I do some things with Gemma Rose. We've got some historical reality shows that we're watching at the moment. I will have to tell you about those sometime. Yes, they have been leading to some wonderful learning experiences. We're really enjoying ourselves. So I'm hoping that you're all out there enjoying unschooling. I hope you're not having any doubts about anything. If so, stop by my blog, leave me a comment, we can chat. Thank you for listening to this episode. And until next time, don't forget to trust, respect, and love unconditionally.